Well, before we uh, dig into this text, I just want to say thank you to you all who have, who have asked and, uh, and prayed for us. It's been a, a couple of, of long and busy weeks. This weekend, uh, from about Wednesday on, uh, I went over and picked up my daughter and all her stuff in Newburgh and moved her to Boise, where she starts a new job at St. Luke's uh, a week from tomorrow. Uh, the weekend before that, we were at Caleb and Nicole's graduation in Newburgh, and the weekend before that, we were at Allie, or in Salem, and the weekend before that, we were at Allie's graduation in Newburgh. And so it was, it was really a, a delightful thing to be able to participate in all of those, and I'm grateful for uh, those of you who served not only us, but the church in allowing us the freedom to uh, to go and to participate in these things over the last couple of weeks. And yet, there's always something in on Sunday mornings that's missing when we're not here. Uh, we love being here. We love you. And so it's good to be back this morning. With that said, let's take a look at Luke uh, chapters 1 and 2. I think, um, I think for a long, long time, the church has been prone, and I'm talking just broadly here, I'm going to make, make some, some big uh, sweeping strokes here, uh, but to undervalue the role of women in the church. We have uh, said, hey, we need you to take ca- care of flowers and food and everything else the guys will take care of. And I think we've seen some of the difficulties of this uh, in, in the church over the past 50 years. And I think that's in many ways the way we've attempted to operate, but I don't think that's necessarily played out the way we had always intended. Uh, There's been uh, clearly over the last 50 to 70 years a decline in the church of of willing and able-bodied servants. If you've ever been involved in church leadership, most of us know the 80-20 rule that generally holds pretty true, and that is that 80% of the work in the church is done by about 20% of the church's members. However, I think if we really zoom in and take a look at this trend, one of the things we see is that as, uh, as work rates among women have increased, particularly in the U.S. over the last 70 years, the 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 need for volunteers and the work that has largely uh, gone undone in the church has continued to rise as well. Now, I don't think it's wrong for women to work outside of the workplace. Please don't hear that. But I think as women have moved into the workforce, they have of necessity in many ways moved out of some of the opportunities to serve in the church. And over the last 70 years or so, I think the church has felt that loss. I think we've said so many times with our mouths, hey, here's here's food and here's flowers and we need you to take care of those things. All the while, women have been doing incredible ministry inside of the church, often unseen and underappreciated, and certainly that's true in the home. I, I would have to confess that my wife, by me, goes far underappreciated for all that she does and all that she is. And it's so easy to take her and to take you all for granted. 
And as we've seen these trends move and, and, and the necessity of women to leave the home and, and then to join the workforce, I think we've begun to undervalue some of the roles that women play in, in our lives, not only in the church, but in the home. I hear people say, you know, it's one of the first things we always do, right? You get to a group of people together and you don't know each other. And what's the first question? What do you what do? You do? We, we often define ourselves by our jobs. I'm a pastor. I'm an IT manager. I'm an engineer. I'm a contractor. I'm a builder. I'm a farmer. I'm whatever it is. And, and you see the mom who's at home with her kids, like squirming, getting uncomfortable. And the question comes to her. And something like this comes out of her mouth. Oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm, I'm just a housewife. Just. As though this wasn't one of the most difficult jobs in the world. And one of the most valuable. And simultaneously underappreciated. There's, there's no just. I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible does not speak of women in these ways. It doesn't speak of women in ways of just or only. It doesn't speak of them in ways of doing menial tasks so that the men can do the real work. It's true that men and women do not have the same roles in the church and in the home, and God has made us different. This is not hard. It doesn't take children very long to understand that guys and girls are different. Girls play with dolls and boys turn everything into a gun and some like pink and others don't. And we, we don't look the same. We don't act the same. We don't talk the same. We don't like the same things. It does not take us very long to figure out that God has made men and women differently. And we've kind of come to this place in our culture where, where in an attempt to, uh, to call for equality, what we've called for in the culture is often sameness. But equal does not mean same. Are men and women equals before God? I think the answer biblically is absolutely. This is why Peter tells husbands to be very, very careful in the ways that they treat their wives as co-heirs with them of the grace of God. Co-heirs. Equals before God. Equal in standing. Equal in value. Equal in all ways. But equal does not mean the same. And from the very beginning of Genesis, we see this laid out for us. If you look at Genesis 1, you see that God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he made the light day and the darkness night. And he, there was evening and there was morning the first day. And what does God declare about the making of light and dark? He says, it is good. It is good. And then he makes mountains and seas, and he declares it to be good, and he makes uh, animals and plants and birds and fish. And every single day after creating, he declares it to be good. And then he creates a man, 
And what does he say about the man? He says, it is not good. Now, if men and women were the same, God would just declare it to be good and move along. But he doesn't. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, before we get too offended at this idea of the word helper, especially if you read the Psalms, but in other places as well, and we read how many times God refers to himself in the Psalms as the helper of Israel, we must conclude that there is not value attached to the word. Because if calling Eve Adam's helper makes her in some way less than him, God would never call himself Israel's helper. Because that would mean he would be less than Israel. But if God can be Israel's helper, this word can't have anything to do with the quality of one's being. All God is saying is, look, it's not good for man to be alone. And so I'm going to make somebody who's fit with him. I'm going to make somebody who fits together, who's different, who completes the picture, who's all of the things that he's not. Now, we got to remember that in this moment, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, unity in these three persons is creating people to be a reflection of him. And it should be no wonder to us that when he creates one man, he says, this isn't done. And he leaves Adam in the garden to name the animals before he creates Eve in order that, and this I think is really important, before sin ever enters the equation, Adam feels lonely. And he sees that all of these animals have a pair, but there's, there's no one fit for him. There's no corresponding pair that fits together with him. And so God creates a woman. And only then does he declare, not that it's good, every single thing up to that point was declared to be good. He creates Adam, and he says for the first time it's not good, and then he creates Eve, and he says it is very good. And the reason this is so important is because everything biblically that goes into what it means to be a man is given by God to men in order to reflect his nature and his character, and everything biblically about what it means to be a woman is given by God to women to be a reflection of God's nature and his character. But those are oftentimes very different things. Yes, men and women are both created in God's image. We're both intellectual and spiritual and rational and moral beings. But there is a whole set of attributes that God has given to men to reflect part of who he is and a whole set of attributes that God has given to women to reflect who he is. And only when we can appreciate those for what they are can we really come to a, a, a better understanding of who God is. And so today, I want to look at some of these characteristics in the person of Mary. Now, uh, 
for those of you in the room, there's, there's always danger in these kinds of, of sermons because uh, as you begin to prepare these kind of sermons, you're like, well, what about the people in the room who, who aren't mothers? Or, or what about the people in the room who, who want to be mothers and, and yet at this point cannot be? Well, let me tell you why this sermon is for all of us and we sh- why we should all pay attention. Number one, maybe, uh, maybe you want to be a mom and, and are not yet, but I would encourage you to think about how you might play an important role in the lives of others. Many of us have been impacted by uh, men who were not our fathers and women who were not our mothers. In fact, as we were driving back and forth from Boise, uh, Riley and I were talking about um, some uh, people who, who she knows, she went to school with them, who were fundamentalist Mormon, and when they uh, came to faith in Christ, they were absolutely and utterly rejected by their family. And one of them got engaged recently, and not a single one of her family members was there. And it reminded me of Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, where Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Notice he defines when. He's not saying, hey, if you, if you lose your mother and father, whether that be to death or whether that be to uh, following Jesus and being rejected, you gain a hundredfold mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children and lands now, not in the next life. He's not talking about in heaven. This is not a future reference. He's saying right now. And what the heck is he talking about? He's talking about a room like this, filled with over a hundred people, who God is saying your role to one another is to be father and mother and brother and sister and child and to receive lands. He's talking about the church. There's people out there who are going to be called to count the cost of following Jesus, and they find him worthy. They can sing with us, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And then they follow Jesus, and they lose their family as a result. It happens. And the role of the church is to welcome them in. Some of us have lost fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters to death. Some of us have never had them, but we all get to play a role in the lives of others. We had some friends who, uh, who were part of our church in Tucson, uh, an incredible couple who were simply never able to have children. They wanted to have children, uh, but they could not. They were like the rock star children's ministry workers. They just loved those kids like they were their own. They did far more than just show up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. They were the best childless parents maybe I've ever seen. They did incredible things. And so even if you want to have kids but can't, 
or you've lost children, God has a role for you to play in the church. Or maybe you're single, either a man or a woman. Maybe you can learn something about either what kind of woman you want to be or what kind of woman you want to look for. But in reality, this message is for all of us. And originally, my points, uh, which we haven't even got to yet, I'm not going to freak you out there. We should move pretty quickly today uh, through those points. Uh, But really, the message is for all of us. Originally, I was going to talk about mothers, but I've given that up. And we're going to look at four qualities of faithful faithful followers of Jesus today. And and so we're going to see how faithful Christians are first willing to be used by God. Because we're not just talking about moms or women today, this is something we can all learn from Mary as we see her story in Luke 1 and 2 unfold. And that is, uh, first off, faithful followers of Jesus, faithful Christians, are be willing to be used by God. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 of Luke. Because here, uh, the angel Gabriel, now Gabriel uh, should ring a bell and probably did to her as well. Excuse me, the, the, the name Gabriel only shows up in two places. Daniel, I think it's chapter 8, and here in Luke chapter 1. In Luke, or in Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel is promising the Messiah, and here he's named. And so no doubt, as soon as uh, this angel Gabriel is named here, it, it, it gets Mary's attention. But Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then when we get to verse 34, we see that she asked the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, we've seen a question like this already in Luke chapter 1. We didn't read it this morning, but when the angel comes to Zechariah while he's on temple service, uh, Zechariah is uh, afraid as she would, but he also questions Uh, Gabriel in verse 18, how shall I know this? And then we see something very different about Zechariah and uh, Mary because Zechariah almost argues, for I'm old, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How is this even going to be possible? Zechariah doubts, he questions God. Mary has questions but not doubtful questions. She doesn't doubt the power of God. She doesn't uh, doubt his ability. And notice her response. The angel said to her that she, the, the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And then in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever God says, I'll do. Now, she must have known the difficulty that this was likely to bring her. Her story that she's going to have to go to now, or she's in Nazareth still at this point, the story she's going to have to tell the community is, yes, I'm, a vir- I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin. Now, who's going to believe her? And how does she know she's not going to get stoned? Because that would have been what was prescribed for her and whoever committed this sin with her. How does she know that she's not going to be rejected by her fiancé, who he 
we see that's kind of exactly what happened. He's going to put her away quietly. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, Nope, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, for what is in, conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She would have been rejected. She would have been gossiped about. But she said yes. She said yes. I think sometimes we underestimate the quality of willingness in servants of God. Thank you, Zach. I was reading a book some time ago. It was a devotional by Paul Tripp, a, um, a Christmas devotional. And I'm going to read you part of one of the entries in it. It's a little long, so bear with me, but I think what he has to say is really valuable. He says, one of the dark character qualities of sin that we don't recognize as much as we should is unwillingness. We're often unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense to us. We're often unwilling to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. We're regularly unwilling to wait. We're often unwilling to be open and honest. We're too often unwilling to consider the loving rebuke of another. We struggle to be willing to say no to our wrong thoughts and desires. We often struggle to be willing to answer God's ministry call. Often we are unwilling to admit that we were wrong. Too often we struggle to serve willingly and to give generously. Unwillingness is one of sin's powerful damaging results. So here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there is no other way. Jesus was willing to leave the splendor of eternity to come to this broken and groaning world. He was willing to take on human flesh with all its frailty. He was willing to endure an ignominious birth in a stable. He was willing to go through the dependency of childhood. He was willing to expose himself to all of the hardships of life in this fallen world. He was willing to submit to his own law. He was willing to do his father's will at every point. He was willing to serve when he deserved to be served. He was willing to be misunderstood and mistreated. He was willing to endure rejection and gross injustice. He was willing to preach a message that would cause him personal harm. He was willing to suffer public mockery. He was willing to endure physical torture. He was willing to go through the pains of his father's rejection. He was willing to die. He was willing to rise and ascend to be our constant advocate. Jesus was willing. You see, it's not just the Christmas story. Rather, the entire redemptive story hinges on one thing, the eternal willingness of Jesus. Without his willingness, you and I would be without hope and without God. What are we willing to do? Are we willing to share the gospel with the lost? Are we willing to open our lives and our homes and our hearts to non-believers? Are we willing to submit to God's word on what is good for us and what isn't? On what is sin and what isn't? Are we willing to patiently nurture our children despite their repeated sinfulness and spitefulness? Are we willing to forgive those who hurt us 70 times 7? Are we willing? Because faithful believers, like Mary, are willing 
to be used by God. Secondly, faithful believers know and use God's word. Faithful believers and faithful mothers are willing to know and use God's word. If we look at verses 46 through 55, we see this response of Mary to arriving uh, and, and meeting her, uh, her cousin who is also pregnant. And one of the things that is easy to be lost in here is just how much scripture flows out of Mary's mouth. My soul magnifies the Lord, Psalm 34, 2. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, 2 Samuel 22, Isaiah 43, 45, 49, 60, um, Hosea 13. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, 1 Samuel. For behold, from now on all, chil- uh, all generations will call me blessed, Genesis 30. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, Psalm 126, and holy is his name, Psalm 99 and 119. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, Psalm 103. He has shown strength with his arm, Isaiah 59. You see the point. It is scripture that flows out of her as she extols God. Some of this is direct quotation, some of it is illusion, but either way, Mary knew her Bible, a remarkable thing based upon the fact that there is no way she had her own copy. That would have only been available to her in the synagogue. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, reteach, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is not my opinion that is good for those things. Not a single one of my thoughts matters ever as I step into the pulpit, but only God's word. Now, we are instructed to give one another wisdom, and certainly we should offer that to our children, but it is God's word that is profitable for teaching. This is a word that means instruction in what is true, for reproof that is correcting bad behavior, parents Do not buy into the lie. Listen carefully if you're a parent into this room. Do not buy into the lie that says the only instruction you should give your children should be what to do and never what not to do. There was one law before sin entered the world, and it was a do not. And the Ten Commandments is filled with do nots. We not only teach our children what to think, But we offer reproof. We correct bad behavior. There is correction. This is a... this, is, this word only occurs here in the New Testament, and it's, uh, it's used to refer to something that had once fallen down. If you had something maybe in your yard, and it had fallen down, and you wanted to stand it up, you would correct it. You would make it upright. Scripture just doesn't just rebuke bad behavior. It restores one to good behavior. And then training in righteousness is instruction on how to start in the right direction. Where there is teaching and there is training, there is no need for reproof and correction. And so we positively instruct our children in what to do, and then we also correct them when they do what's wrong. But it is Scripture that is profitable for that. 
Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Notice specifically that the author of Hebrews doesn't just call us to remember any leaders, but to remember specifically those leaders who spoke the word of God to you. The best leaders in the church and in the world and in the home, the ones who are most worthy of honor and respect are the ones who speak the word of God to us. While not about mothers, Hebrews 13 commends this kind of behavior. Pastors, parents, friends can all offer opinions, but unless the word of God is offered, there is no certainty. It is only God's word that will never be wrong. It will never err. It will never lead astray. A few weeks ago when I was preaching last time, I told you it was a right, proper sermon because I had a Charles Spurgeon quote. Well, this is a right, proper sermon as well because Spurgeon said this, but he said it not about himself, but about John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Spurgeon said this. He said, prick him anywhere. And you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. May our children and our friends and, and, and our uh, other members of the church and our co-workers say something like that of us. Cut them anywhere and they bleed the Bible. These are the kinds of people we should be. Thirdly, faithful believers and faithful mothers find their joy in God. They find their joy in God. Notice what Mary says here. Because there is a certain church that would like to take the words of Mary, blessed are you, or of, of uh, Elizabeth that is, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and turn it into something about Mary that it was never intended to be. Because Mary did not find her joy in being a mother. She did not find her joy in being the mother of the Lord, of the Messiah. Notice what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. My spirit has joy in God, my Savior. Her joy was not in her circumstances. Her joy was not in being the mother of the Messiah. Scripture nowhere, by the way, elevates Mary for being the mother of Jesus uh, in some strange way. In fact, it's not just in recent times, but right within the pages of Scripture, people tried to do this. And it was corrected all the way back then. Luke chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but listen to verses 27 and 28 of Luke. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd, that is Jesus, uh, raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is your mom for being your mom, Jesus. And Jesus shuts that down fast. But he said, Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If your joy is in your role as a wife or a mom or a husband or father or friend or employee or anything other than God, you will be disappointed. Being a mother, being a father, being a friend, being an employee, being all of those things, they're wonderful gifts from God. But when you try and set up your role as mother, father, spouse, sibling, 
church member, employee, or anything else as your God, you'll find out just how lousy of a God those things are. Our joy has to come only in God. And our joy in God must be the highest joy. Why? Because there is no greater thing that you, than you, that you can take joy in. By very definition of what it means to be God, God must be the greatest thing. He must be the most beautiful thing. He must be the most wonderful thing. And therefore, there is not, and in fact, cannot be anything else that out, out there that exists that is more joyful to experience than God. Because if there's anything out there that's more joyful than God, then of necessity, that thing must be God. We need to take all of those wonderful gifts of these roles that God has called us to play and enjoy them. It's Mother's Day. I hope you enjoy your day. Men, children, help her in that, please. Don't don't make that harder on her. But don't idolize that role. It will disappoint you when your children are snotty to you again, when your husband takes you for granted again, when they grow up and move out, hopefully again. Just kidding. You'll be disappointed. But God will never, ever disappoint. And so faithful Believers and faithful mothers are willing to be used by God. They know and use God's word. They find their joy in the Lord. And lastly, they obey the Lord carefully. They obey the Lord carefully. If there was any reason for God to choose Mary, this might be it. I'm not sure there was any reason in Mary for God to choose Mary, but he did, and I think this is an important thing. Notice in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 2, We're told, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, now that was commanded in the Old Testament, that after eight days he was to be circumcised, he was called Jesus, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Exodus 13, Leviticus 12, we see some of this, uh, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb first shall be called holy to the Lord. The firstborn thing of people or cattle or anything had to either be sacrificed, if it were an animal, or bought back because it belonged to the Lord. And, and the provision of what had to be bought back was actually pretty expensive. But if you were poor, there was provision in the law again, Exodus 13 and Leviticus 12, to offer a a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons instead of a bull, I think it was. And so we know that Mary and Joseph were poor. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, why is this so important? Well, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to have perfect obedience to the law. And if his obedience to the law is not perfect, then our salvation is in vain. But at this point, as an eight-day-old baby, he doesn't get to say, hey, mom, we got to go to the temple. I need to be circumcised. And you need to sacrifice. No, Mary and Joseph 
just willingly and obediently follow God's laws. They, they do what they're supposed to do. At this point, his conformity, not obedience, but his conformity to the law is dependent upon his parents. And Mary and Joseph were very clear to obey the Lord perfectly. It's really easy to be disobedient to God and then label it grace because, hey, after all, it's not legalism. But obedience isn't legalism. And license isn't grace. Legalism is using obedience to earn God's approval. But only Jesus can do that. License is just merely finding excuses to be disobedient to God. Faithful believers, faithful mothers, simultaneously obey the Lord and preach the merits of Christ. We simultaneously obey and give grace. We simultaneously show others around us that, look, I'm not obeying to earn favor with God. Jesus' sinless life has earned all the favor that I need. His death covers my disobedience. His resurrection gives me life. I'm trusting in that and in that alone. But I still believe that God is a good father who loves to protect and guard his children and keep them from danger and things that destroy and hurt and only can offer death and destruction. And so they willingly obey, not to earn God's favor, but because in Christ they already have it. And so we obey simultaneously uh, to, to God's word and preach the merits of Christ. Moms, grandmas, those who fill the role of mothers to the motherless, ladies, all of you who, who show us a part of God's character that, that we need desperately to see, we need you to be involved in the lives of others. We need you in ABFs to show us what God is like in growth groups and kids ministry and youth ministry and in roles as deacons because God wants to display himself through you. Be willing to say yes to whatever God asks. Read your Bibles over and over and over so it just becomes a part of who you are. Find your joy in God, and then obey the Lord carefully. And God will use that in the lives of others in amazing ways. We love you. We appreciate you. We're grateful to God for you all. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of mothers, for the gift of women and grandmothers and aunts and all those who show us what you're like. We're grateful for this day to celebrate them, which is not enough, but it is something. And so, Lord, would you help them today to feel honored? Would you help them today to feel privileged for the role that they play in your church and in our lives and in our homes? Would you help us, convict us, forgive us for the sin of neglecting to appreciate them? and all that they do. Lord, would you use them to show us the gospel in, in beautiful and tender ways. For your glory, for the good of your church, 
for the good of our homes. We ask in Jesus' name.